All right, we're Matthew 5, or excuse me, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, and we're going to be verses 2 and 3, and I think 4. But we'll, we'll go ahead and start in verse 1 and reading. We'll read Matthew 6, 1 through 4 this morning. Alright, starting in verse 1, so these are the words of Christ. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not, left, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we begin. And I, I want to give you 30 seconds uh, for you yourself um, to cry out to the Lord for understanding uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then I will close it. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn to you. Uh, for we turn to you because we are in need this morning. We turn to you because we need you to show us your grace as we open up your word. As we read the words of Jesus, Lord, let it not just be words or a practice. But God, transform us in our hearts that we might be more like Christ. That we might understand what He has done. And Lord, that we might follow in His example. We ask that Your Spirit would open up our eyes to see, to hear, and to understand. God, for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we started a, a new section in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, we, we've got to chapter 6, which is really a transition uh, into this section about practicing your righteousness before others. And those three things that we're going to look at over the next few weeks as far as what we're practicing before others, acting out our faith before others is giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Uh, we, we looked at verse 1 last week. And we spent all of our time in verse 1. Uh, we, were, we, were, we were shown the first word of verse 1 as a caution. 
Beware. Uh, and the point being, um, look out. There's potential danger here. And we saw that the potential danger for anyone is sin. Even in our practicing of good things, giving to people who are in need, prayer and fasting, these things are not out of the corrupted work of sin. And basically we looked and found that it's, it's not the work itself, but that the motive of our giving, of our praying, and of our fasting. But we didn't really look at the last sentence or half a sentence in verse 1 when he says, For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We didn't get into that too deep last week, but we'll, we'll incorporate it this week. And over the next few weeks, as we look at these practices, as we look at these, look at these acts of faith. But as I said, these, these next few, section, this, these next few uh, weeks will be broken down into giving, prayer, and fasting. This week be giving. And so as we look at verses 2, 3, and 4, here are the three main ideas or headings for us this morning. So if you're a note taker, these are going to be our three main headings. Number one... Why, the expect, why does Jesus have an expectation that we will give? So why an expectation? Number two, the how. How we are to do it. And number three, the reward. So why is there an expectation? The how we are to give. And then the reward. Uh, so let's... Let's look at it. If you notice, and if you've read through this passage, 2, 3, and 4, you will see that it is cut into almost two parts, and they're very symmetrical. They're very reflective of one another. The negative really in the beginning, and then the positive reflection in the end. But you'll notice verse 2 starts similarly to verse 3, when you give to the needy. There is an expectation Jesus has of his hearers. There's an expectation Jesus has of us, the church, that we are giving to the needy. It's not if you give, but when you give. And it's very plain. Jesus has this expectation that we will sacrifice of ourselves for someone who doesn't have or is in need. Now, why? Why is there this expectation of Jesus towards his hearers and also towards us as his followers? There's a few reasons. Let's go through those quickly. Number one, creation. Creation. Mankind as a whole is created by God. You exist because of another being, right? Think about the steps in creation of Adam. He was formed. He did not just form himself. He did just not come into existence, but a being formed him out of the dirt. 
He was dependent upon God to just be made. Secondly, that was not enough. He did not have life until God breathed life into him. You being, you existing, you, you being a human being is solely dependent upon another being. You needed God to create you. And then you think beyond the beginning, you think about, you, you think about the sustaining of you as a person, as a human being. You will leave today and your bellies will rumble on the way home. And I'm hoping you're not thinking about what you will be having right now. Let's wait and think about that later. But you will go home and you will eat. And who are you depending upon? Well, you might say, whoever's going to cook, whoever went and bought it, whoever paid you your income to purchase your food. But in the greatest sense in all of it, it is God who provides to you your food that you might continue. And even in water, God's provision of water so that we might live another day. And then also just shelter. These needs that we have, and we'll, we'll come to the, the next section in the Sermon on the Mount where, where God tells through Jesus, tells the hearers, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Those things that we just discussed, really. Those necessities of life He doesn't want you to be anxious about. Because you as a needy person, He will provide. Now, they don't always come in the form that we want. They don't always come uh, wrapped with a bow. And sometimes we have to stop and look for God providing for us in these ways. Sometimes it looks better in life than other times of our life and other seasons of our life. But we see an expect, one of the expectations that we have is that we are needy people in ourselves. But here is the truth. God provides for we needy people. He is our refuge. You think about it in the if you think about the idea of a refuge in the Psalms, it's 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 all throughout the Psalms, but then you you picture in your mind a refugee. Picture in your mind a refugee. What do they usually look like? They look pretty rough. Why? Because they're usually hungry, thirsty, lacking of shelter. They are in need of someone to provide for them. They need a refuge. And God, in His common grace, provides these things. He even brings the sun and the rain on the good and the evil. God is the refuge. Uh, but the simple fact is, the simple fact is, is that we, we are humans, and that just makes us needy people. We're dependent upon the kindness, the mercy, the compassion of God. And because we are humans, we are also made in the image of God. 
right? Made in the image of God at creation. We are created to imitate this very compassion and love like God has done for us. But because we're not just needy people, we're also greedy people, right? We're not just needy, we're also greedy. So not only do we have this innate need within us, but God has shown us how to give. God has shown us how to give. And He even commanded Israel because He knew their greed and He knew that come harvest time, they would want to harvest all that they had. But what did He tell them? He said, when it's time to pull up all your crop, I want you to leave some on the edges. What for? For the people in need. So that when the the sojourner or the widow or the orphan, when they don't have their own crop, but you have left the edges, they know where to go. Sacrifice, give of what you have for someone else. He commanded Israel to do that very thing because he knew that they needed to be instructed on how to give to those who are in need. But most importantly, the reason why there was an expectation to give We are most needy when it comes to eternal things. Guess what? You could starve to death and die. And that would be bad. But what's worse is that you do not have the bread of life. You do not have Christ. And you starve eternally. You starve eternally. We started the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus saying these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's, to be poor in spirit is worse than being poor in finances. To not have what it takes to have eternal life is way worse than what it, not having what it takes to live another day on this earth. You see, the poor, the needy, cannot within themselves on their own live. The poor need other people to provide for them so that they can actually live another day on this earth. The poor in spirit cannot live eternal life apart from the provision, the kindness, the giving of God to them through Christ Jesus. And that's what we read this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, specifically verse 9. Boy, I think it would be a good idea to memorize this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. what he says now and i don't know if you picked up the context when we read this chapter earlier uh 
Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they had said that they were going to give, uh, and this, this is in the context of the chapter 7 and chapter 9, they were going to give to the needy saints in Jerusalem. The poor Christians in Jerusalem, they were going to help, they were going to collect an offering and send it to the saints that are in Jerusalem. And so Paul is motivating to do what they said they would do. And he reminds them of their spiritual poverty. He reminds them that they were in need for eternal life. And they looked to the richest one that they can find to receive what they needed for eternal life. Verse 8. Let's start at 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, the Son of God, yet for our sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's read it one more time. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. You might remember Philippians 2 says... For he counted equality with God a thing not to be grasped, not to hang on to. He was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. It said he became like a servant, taking on the form of man, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Now you can turn three chapters back and get another understanding of that very verse written in a different way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So Christ who was rich became poor so that in his poverty you might be rich. What does that mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Rich to poor. Rich to poor. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God, poor to rich. Now, I'll just give you a word of caution. If you don't understand that, I can't help you with the rest of this. If you do not realize your poverty spiritually, you do not understand the depth of your sin and its offense to a holy God and that in his love, in his justice, he cannot do anything but condemn us in our sin. But in his love, he sent his son, hung him on a cross, put our guilt upon him, our filth, our poverty upon Him and gave us His riches, His righteousness, that we might live and have eternal life. This is called the great exchange. Poverty for riches. His righteousness upon us and our sin and guilt upon Him. This is our motivation. This is why we are expected to give to needy people. Because one, we have been provided for physically. Two, 
We are made in the image of God who is one who gives greatly. And three, we have been made rich in Christ. This is why we are expected to give to the needy. Now here's the problem to some degree. When the church isn't the greatest example of giving to the needy, then we have a major problem. Because then all that I said about being made rich in Christ is lost to a world that sees churches who are greedy and money hungry. It makes no sense to them. And to be honest, it makes no sense to Jesus either. And so we must realize that this expectation is one that cannot be missed. And we'll understand a little bit more why here in just a second. Now, number two, then how are we to do this? Let's go back to Matthew five or Matthew 6. Um, verse 2. So how? So we know we see the expectation. So how does Jesus want us to do this? What's the wrong way and what's the right way? Well, let's start with the wrong way because they're mirrored here in chapter or in verses 2 and verses 3, but let's start with the wrong way. Let's begin it back at 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. So, kids, a trumpet, you know, making a big sound. Sound no trumpet before you. Now, let's stop there. I don't know. I'm going to read the rest of it. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So this is what we're going to call the charade of the hypocrite, right? This is the charade of the hypocrite. Y'all know how to play charades, right? You, you act it out, right? You're, you're told something and you have to perform it in front of someone else. Well, this is the charades of the hypocrite. So here we have a, note, note the air quotes, righteous person. We have a righteous person ready to show the world that they are righteous. They're saying, because I am good, I give to the poor. These poor, poor, pitiful people. And I want everyone to see it. And they make a ruckus in the public. They make a ruckus. They, they, they churn up all kinds of sound because... See, everybody looked at me when I made a sound, right? So when I make a sound in front of people, I'm wanting attention, I'm wanting people to look at me and they make a ruckus. And where do they do it? They do it in the synagogues and they do it in the streets. Why? Because that's where the eyeballs are, right? That's where the attention is. It's a perfect place to put on a show. And that's what they're doing. They're putting on a show. So it's interesting because that word hypocrite in the Greek is really interesting. Uh, we, We adapt it. We just say hypocrite and we automatically think bad, right? That's the association we have. We know a hypocrite is someone uh, pretending to be something that they are not. Uh, But as Jesus says this word hypocrite, it actually had a positive meaning. It actually had a different, uh, we had a different understanding. Um, The word hypocrite was used basically uh, for a stage actor. 
Someone who did put on a show. They did play a part. And it was a common used word. A hypocrite was a stage actor. Right? They were playing a part. They assumed a character, a role. And that's what these guys were doing. They were playing the part of righteous. But they weren't. It was a show. It was... It was an act. I was reading through commentaries on this passage and I, I came across one from John Calvin and he said, in, in defining these hypocrites, he said this, They do good, not from a desire to do what is right, nor on account of the glory of God, but only to obtain for themselves fame and reputation for holiness. They are not what they seem to be. They sought to do good, but they sought to do good for themselves, for their own fame and reputation. So people might look at them and say, hey, he is a holy guy. So what's the right way? We see it in verse 3. Look at verse 3a. So the beginning of verse 3, but when you give to the needy, there's that repetition. When you give to the needy, here we go, everyone listen. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. Don't let your left, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's not, that sounds kind of weird, right? It's not like our left hand is saying, hey, right hand, did you know what I did today? No, the, the idea is that we're quiet. That if your hands had a mind of their own, that you gave with your right hand and your left hand, you were so discreet that even your left hand did not know what was happening. So our deer hunters in here, or squirrel hunters, or whatever the case may be, whatever you hunt, have you ever tried to sneak up on your game and you're, you're looking for every twig? You're trying to, to skirt around the fallen leaves because any noise will alert that game, and scare them away. You see, the hypocrite, they're stepping on every leaf, they're breaking every twig because they're wanting the eyeballs to fall on them. But Jesus says the right way is indiscretion. The right way is the quiet way. Contrast these these two ways, loud, obnoxious, and public, Verse, discreet, quiet, in secret. But there is a, I got to thinking about this this morning. And I remember a phase in my life where I took this idea and it actually became a, um, a work of me trying to please God by how secret I was. So it's like, Okay, here comes the plate. I got to get, write my check. What really, I got to fold. I don't want anybody to see me. And it was almost as if the more secret I am, the more in the right that I was. And so we could actually make this about us being super secret, which makes us super holy. But that's not the case. 
It's just about figuring out what your motivation is. What your motives for your giving is. Is it because you're wanting someone to look and see? Or is it because you're wanting to be obedient to God and to please your heavenly Father? So the second way, the right way, I want to call it the quiet model of, of Christ. The quiet model or example of Christ. You think about the ministry of Christ. Think about it. Think about the life of Christ. He was making noise, but not in this overt, loud, obnoxious way, right? He was actually reflecting fame, reputation, wanting the big crowds. So he, he wouldn't walk around blasting trumpets. Think about how he came into Jerusalem for, for uh, Holy Week before uh, his, his, uh, his death. Did he send uh, an escort? Did he roll out the red carpet? Did he come in in a big chariot? He rode in on a donkey. He was quiet and discreet. In his ministry, when he did something miraculous, something that would get the things to churn, the gossip to go, what did he tell that who heard or, or received? Go and tell no one. And there's some motive, motive behind that for his time had not yet come. But he was not saying, oh, you have, you have sight now. Go tell your neighbors. You can see Jesus did it. He was not elevating himself to seek fame, a reputation. His goal, his goal was to please the Father. His goal was obedience to what he came to do. And he did not need to tell anyone or to shout at the rooftops. He just was obedient. We are called to follow this example. The quiet model of Christ. So this is not only how, but why. Turn to Galatians 2.20 with me. Some of you may know this one by heart, but let's look at it. And let's just read it slowly. Galatians 2.20. As we're called to follow this example, we're called to do in secret as we give. It's easier to understand when we know this truth. Galatians 2.20 This is true about those who give in secret, who do not blow trumpets, who do not seek fame and recognition. This is for the ones who give for the good of the other and to please their heavenly Father. Verse 20, Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It means I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, because I have died with Christ, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, and the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. We needy people, full of sin, rebellious against God, we received Christ as he gave himself for us by his love. And now he lives in us. He lives in us. If Christ has saved us, Christ dwells in us. And if Christ dwells in us, our lives will be shaped by him and will begin and we will begin to live like him. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So if you are shouting at the rooftops, if you are blowing your trumpets, if you are making your good deeds known for the sake of fame, reputation, there is this, op- there is this possibility that Christ is not in you. And you see this from the perspective of James, Jesus' brother. Let me read to you what Jesus' brother says on this topic. James chapter 2. Starting in verse 14. James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, we've kind of backtracked a bit just in the, the, and looking at just giving in itself, giving to the needy. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, what do you, how do you think Jesus would react? Let me stop there. How do you think Jesus would react? Verse 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you say you have faith, you say you believe, you say you're a follower of Christ. My question question is, is there fruit from that faith? Is there evidence that Christ lives in you? How do you respond to the one who's poorly clothed or lacks food? How? How do you respond to the one who is poorly clothed or lacks food? And I'm not asking how does your church respond. I'm asking you how do you respond. If you don't, repent of your sin. Next step further if you do give, if you clothe the, the, the poor and feed the needy, are you doing it with godly motives, with a desire to do what is right and to glorify God? Or do you take the posture of a hypocrite? As Charles Spurgeon says, a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other. Are you looking to be known for your giving by others? Do you have to tell someone the good you did? That's not Christ-like giving. 
and if so, repent of your sin. Throw down your trumpet and take up the quiet cross of Christ. Now lastly and quickly, the reward. Back at Matthew 5, the reward. Our last portion. Look at verse 2 again. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What is the reward of the hypocrite? They want praise and recognition by man, by people. They say, see my act? Recognize my sacrifice and praise my righteousness. The hypocrite says, this was a job well done. Would you like to see it? Would you like to know how much I gave? Would you like to know who it was that I gave it to you? They want a response from one person Not God, but man. That is the reward they want. That is the reward they receive. To be seen, recognized, and praised in this life and this life. And how does this verse end? Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now go back up to verse 1, the end of verse 1, and look at this. I told you we'd come back to this. For the people who practice their righteousness so that they might be seen by others. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you receive your reward from man and this life, there is no reward from the Father who is in heaven. That, that word at the end of two says they have received their reward. In the Greek, it means they have been paid for their services. You did, it, you did the job and you got paid. Do you get paid more for what you do? No, you get paid for what you did, right? Jesus says, if the world pays you for your righteousness, you get nothing from God. You are paid in full. You are paid in full. So when we seek, when we seek recognition and praise from this world, from Man in this life, there is no reward in the life to come. He owes us nothing. To seek the reward in this life forfeits your eternal reward in Christ. To seek for reward in this life is to reveal that Christ is not in you. Let me say that again. To seek the reward of this life is to reveal that Christ is not in you. And I know that's a tough statement and I know that's a harsh statement, but it's a biblical truth. Paul says this, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, not below, but are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, there that is again, for you have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It reveals our true value. If our life is seeking that of this earth, it reveals the true value that we have in Christ. Now, the reward for the follower of Christ. Look back at verse 3. Then we'll finish here. When you give to the needy, do not let your let do not let let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The one who gives by the model by modeling the quietness of Christ is the one who gives without expecting anything in return. Now see, this is, that truth can be painted across the varieties of our life, right? We've got some spouses in here. Now, to be married is to give of yourself. And you can even do it with wrong motives in your marriage. You could give of yourself and then turn around and ask your spouse, did you see how I just gave of myself? What good is in that? How unchristlike is that? The one who gives modeling the quietness of Christ is the one who gives not expecting anything in return. Why? Why would someone give of themselves and not expect anything in return? Four quick reasons. Number one, they are motivated by what God has provided for him or her as a very needy person. You know that you're as needy as the next. Number two, you have a heart of compassion. Compassion with passion. Suffer with. And you're led by the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you. Why, number three, would you give without expecting anything in return? Because you're constantly reminded of your poverty. You're constantly reminded of the poverty that Christ took so that you might be rich. Number four, someone who would give of themselves without expecting anything in return, they know that they have received everything in Christ. Everything. Ephesians chapter 1 says, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. All of these motives, all of these motives are not only to give generously, but are also not expecting anything in return in this life not even praise or recognition because they recognize by God the Father that through God the Father they are who they are by the grace of God they know that their righteousness is not of themselves but through the life and death of Christ 
and your father, it says, who sees in secret. Now there's this temptation, and we'll close here. There's a temptation that we have when we do good that we lack faith and we say, I hope I get reward for this. I hope there's credit here somewhere. And we know that the Father sees everything in secret. But it's just in the back of our mind. Does He? Is He writing this one up as good? So let's just finish in Psalm 139 and close here as a reminder of the presence of God. You have to be reminded of this characteristic of God that He is omnipresent. He is always present. Psalm 139. O Lord, have you, or O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and discern my thoughts from afar. That's where those motives lie. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me up behind me and before and you lay your head hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me and the light about me be night. Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. If you think you're acting in darkness and God does not see your giving, your, your godly motive, know that the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. This is the omnipresence of our Creator, of our Heavenly Father. And so what is it that we, what is it, um, what overcomes the motive of wanting to be recognized? What overcomes the motive of wanting people to give you credit? It's to live by faith. It's to live by faith. To live by faith that God knows all, sees all. And it's to live by faith in knowing that Christ has given all so that you might have all. That the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. I want you to hear this parable and then I'll, 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 I'll be quiet. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. And when the man found it, he sold everything he had so that he could buy that treasure. 
you value Christ more than anything? Do you see Him as the greatest treasure? Because when you do, you're willing to give up everything. And I'll tell you this, when you truly see Christ for who He is, there is no doubt that He is the greatest treasure. There is no doubt that He has infinite value. And that all the other things that we may have or may desire, whether they be material or recognition, they mean nothing. Because we know the value, the infinite value of Christ. And if you do not know the infinite value of Christ, or perhaps the Spirit is pressing upon you, then I, I, I pray that you turn from your sin, that you repent and you trust in Christ crucified and resurrected and that you might be saved and have eternal life.